Would you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John? Uh, We are wrapping up the first chapter in John this morning. We're going to look at verses 43 through 51 and and, and consider these uh, verses together, what we find here. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful still on the back table. I think I see four back there uh, with a hard uh, black cover. Go ahead and and grab one of those. Uh, And if you Take one of those Bibles you find this morning's sermon text on uh, page 1054. Um, and, uh, and if you have your own copy of God's Word, uh, you're on your own finding it, and, uh, or, or you can just use your phone and just type it in. That, that'd be great too. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43, uh, and I'll read through verse 51 this morning. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, At the beginning of the last decade, early 2010s, uh, the History Channel, I don't know what this show has anything to do with history, but the History Channel uh, had debuted a show, uh, which I guess is still on, um, is still going currently, called, the, the show is called Swamp People. And it was billed as a reality show. It was billed as a reality show of following the lives of some alligator hunters in Louisiana, which is expanded into different areas, and there was just a whole lot of different things going on. Um, but a, I think an appeal of a show like this, I don't know what it has to do with history, I don't know why the choice was made ultimately, but I think the appeal of a show like this and, and why people set time aside during a week to, to watch a show like Swamp People is to observe the way of life of a group of people who are different from us, uh, different than themselves or that, than uh, than than us as people, because they swim in a different stream than we do, and it's not in the mainstream. They swim in sort of the the backwater, quite literally, the backwater of Louisiana. Uh, these people are different from us, and we like to look in and observe their drama. <laughs> And maybe say to ourselves, hey, our drama isn't quite that bad, uh, maybe comparatively. But Swamp People feeds on maybe some biases that we have, things, uh, or these people we think are, are maybe weird or a little bit off. We don't expect anything good to come out of the places where Swamp People is, is, is uh, filmed. Except maybe for us, some mindless entertainment derived from strange practices, whatever. We ask the question, or we see the question here, 
Can anything good come out of a backwater place? And this question gets asked quite literally in our text this morning. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, this backwater place, a place with literally no appeal? This is the question that Nathanael asks in verse 46 of our text. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now we know that the answer to that question immediately is yes. Because we have the whole counsel of God before us. We have the, all of Scripture before us. The, the answer to anything good, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth is yes. Absolutely something good can come out of Nazareth. But for the first century reader, Nazareth was not a profound place. It was not a happening place. There wasn't a whole lot of societal impact that was being made in Nazareth. It had no perceivable significance. It was just, just there sort of like the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee, a little ways off the, off the shore. Another town, another backwater town, gets named here in this text as well. If you look at verse 44, we find out that Philip, who we're introduced to here, is from Bethsaida. And so a couple weeks ago, we also learned about Andrew and Peter, and they're from Bethsaida as well. This... Uh, this is another small, forgotten place sort of on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Most likely, fishing was the primary industry, as we see that this is the profession of Andrew and, and Peter. We may have been able to pluck Andrew or Peter or Philip out of a group of extras from swamp people. John... Intern John, not the gospel writer John. Uh, former intern John, sorry. <laughs> Stuck there. Uh, preached from 1 Peter last week. And we met Peter two weeks ago in verses 35 through 42. Peter was from there. And we, knew, we know Peter. We know his name. He would go on to do amazing things. But here, he's just a poor fisherman from Bethsaida working a blue-collar job. The men that get named here and the one who doesn't in verses 35 through 42 and then this morning's text, verses 43 through 51, the men who get named here uh, are not, or they don't represent the upper crust of society. These guys are not the cream of the crop. Blue-collar workers just making it. They're fishermen. Small forgotten place. No one, when we read this text, the first century reader, looking at this text, no one would have thought to themselves, yeah, I got my eye on Bethsaida. Something great is coming out of that town. Or Nazareth, for that matter. And yet, out of Nazareth, the Savior of the world would come. And out of Bethsaida, a group of men who this Savior would use to shake the foundations of nearly everything. Can anything good come out of a backwater place? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? As we consider these verses this morning, I want to think about three things that we see in the interactions here between Philip and Nathaniel, Philip and Jesus. Three things. First thing is this. The call to follow Jesus isn't limited by background. The call to follow Jesus isn't limited by background. The second thing I want you to see is that the call to follow Jesus isn't limited by skepticism. 
And the third thing this morning is the call to follow Jesus is heard and heeded by faith. So we'll take each of these in turn. The first one, the call to follow Jesus isn't limited by one's background. Again, we just talked about it. Andrew, Peter, he calls, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. These were men with backgrounds of no perceivable significance. This is, what, what we're not saying here, though, is that upbringing doesn't matter. In fact, upbringing matters dramatically for us. Upbringing matters directly or uh, uh, significantly for us. Uh, if if you're a parent or have had children in the home, or if uh, if you currently have children in the home, you you know what it's like. Rebecca and I want to be parents that bring our six kids, uh, and in our home we want to. We want to center that around uh, love for God and love for, for others. We realize the way that we order our home, every single moment, the way that we order our home has significance. God gave us children, not so that first we would be fulfilled, but God gave us children in order that he might be glorified through our being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, And we're reminded, we get daily glimpses. And again, if you have children in your home, you get these also. And if you've had children in your home, you can probably think of a time where these are apparent. We're reminded that upbringing matters. When, when for our family, we sit down around the dinner table and the twins demand that we sing the doxology before we eat. Like we can't eat before it happens. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, we're reminded that upbringing matters when, when our kids, when they pray to God for understanding in their schoolwork, knowing that they need to know God, the one who created and made everything and gives them knowledge. He's the source of what we have, and he's the one who can give them what they need. And we're reminded, we're reminded that upbringing matters in joy. And in sorrow, we're reminded that upbringing matters and correction offered for dishonoring mom and dad. We're reminded that upbringing matters in commitment and love to care for others, especially in the household of faith. Upbringing matters. And it matters a lot. In this text, though, we're reminded that the commitment to follow Jesus may come through one's upbringing. Like as, as parents, like we're, we're seeking to carve a channel. We want to we see God's grace flowing to our children as often as possible. Whether it's correction or discipline or love and care. All of those things working together to show our children the goodness of God. However, the commitment to follow Jesus does not come because of that. Here's what I mean. I I cannot save my children. Can't do it. As much as I would love to stand up in front of you and say, I can do it, I can't do it. I can't save my kids. The, The call can come through me, and as often as I'm able, I want to make the call to them. The call can come through me, but I can't make the commitment for them. I can't make the commitment to follow Jesus for them. 
I could share the gospel. I can live the gospel. I can model Christ-like living to the best of my ability as I seek to live in obedience according to faith. But I can offer discipline and correction, and I can work to cultivate a love for God's word, but I can't save my kids. Upbringing matters because a commitment to follow Jesus might come through it, but a commitment to follow Jesus isn't good because of it. Our kids need to be given ears to hear and eyes to see that Jesus is the only way to be saved from their sin and then commit to follow Jesus themselves. So we see that upbringing matters, but the call to follow Jesus, the call that comes, that precedes the commitment that we make to follow Jesus, comes but is not limited by where you're from. In our text, Jesus didn't hesitate with Andrew and Peter, or last week, or two weeks ago. Jesus didn't, uh, Jesus didn't hesitate with Andrew and Peter. And in our text this morning, he doesn't hesitate with Philip. Do they have what it takes to follow me? In the long run, this is going to be a difficult journey. Have they proven themselves worthy of this call to follow me? Maybe you've struggled with substantial sin in your past. If you're sitting here this morning, it, it's likely that you have. Whether it be addiction or a trail of broken relationships and broken family in your past. Maybe your life is a mess because of your inability to control your anger. You get the idea. It all point to something. Some substantial sin that we have struggled with. But the reality is that whatever your past contains, the call to follow Jesus isn't limited by it. It comes to us regardless of what has happened to us in our past. Jesus didn't require Peter and Andrew and Philip to get it together before he called them to follow him. In our text this morning, right at the end of verse 43, he just simply says, follow me. It wasn't his calling, it wasn't his background that led to the calling, but it was by the calling of Jesus and Jesus' investment in the lives of these men that these backwater people would be transformed. It's not who they were or what they had done, but the one who they were about to follow. What do you think the limits of following Jesus are? What do you think the limits, the call of Jesus Christ when he says, follow me? Again, Jesus didn't say these guys have the intellectual capacity, the emotional maturity, the educational acumen, the family origins that make them desirable enough for me to call them. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he doesn't say much of anything. He just says, follow me. The Apostle Paul tells us, That the mindset here is actually the opposite of all of those things that I just listed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Backwater people from Bethsaida, they were foolish by the world standards. They were weak by the world standards. They were low and despised. And actually, according to the world, were nothing 
Jesus calls them. And to those who appeared wise, those who appeared powerful, those who had favorable family name, they didn't get the call. The, the question is, why? Paul answers it. He answers it with a, so that. So that there would be no question who it was who would turn the world upside down. He says, the Apostle Paul says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It wasn't these guys. It wasn't Andrew and Peter and Philip and then Nathaniel. There was no latent ability, no potential overflowing. It wasn't Peter, Andrew, Philip, or Nathaniel that would turn the world upside down. It was Jesus Christ and him working through them. The call to follow Jesus isn't limited by one's background. The second thing here I want you to note is that the call to follow Jesus isn't limited by one's skepticism. We've already explored this a little bit. Two weeks ago, in verses 35 through 42, we unpacked a vision for discipleship. What does it look like to be a disciple? And how does the Apostle John, in writing this gospel, uh, show us what discipleship looks like? He says that a disciple hears, he follows, and he brings others. Andrew and the unnamed disciple that we meet in verse 35, yeah, verse 35, they hear about Jesus from John the Baptist, they meet Jesus and they follow him, and then Andrew goes off and he finds his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus also. And now that that actually plays itself out again here in our text this morning. It, It actually plays itself out. We see that Jesus calls Philip to follow him, and then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus. Anytime you see something happen twice in quick succession, take note. It's meaningful. It means something that that we had two quick calls and two quick bringing of others. But, differently than the first time, we see that Philip's call to Nathaniel is met with skepticism in verse 46. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel thought what Philip was telling him was a bit far-fetched. It's like, okay. This, this one, you're saying Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote about a guy from Nazareth? And Nathaniel would have known Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, where God tells Moses... Considered to be the greatest prophet, God tells Moses that he is going to raise up another prophet like Moses. This prophet would speak for God like Moses did. And so Nathaniel said, yeah, so I'm supposed to believe that this guy who came from Nazareth is is this. He came from this backwater place and, and he's this great prophet? He was skeptical. Immediately we have to ask ourselves the question when we see this, are you skeptical of the... The, the call to follow Jesus. Are you here this morning thinking to yourself, is Jesus who he really claims to be? He seems like a good guy, but is he really who he claims to be? Did he really do the things that the Bible claims he did? Could he really have been sinless? Is he really God? 
Did Jesus really come out of the grave physically? Or is that History Channel special that talked about the bones of Jesus that came out after swamp people? Is that actually the truth? Maybe that's your skepticism this morning. Or maybe your skepticism is a little more veiled. Maybe you think to yourself, when you hear the words, follow Jesus, yeah, but not here or here or here. A lot of people think they're following Jesus closely, but we need to be doing constant evaluation and reevaluation. Is the actual application of the words of Jesus Christ the most important thing to me this week? Let me give you an example from Mark's gospel. Jesus was watching people give their offering, their tithe. So we're not going to have someone post up in the back this after and watch you give. But Jesus was watching this take place in the temple. And, uh, and he sees a lot of rich people showing up and giving a lot of money. And then he sees a widow drop two coins into the box. An insignificant amount by any worldly standard. And Jesus says out loud, he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. There's widows in the first century had no way to provide for themselves. And if they were lucky enough to have a family member who would take them in to provide for them, they still had no means of being financially independent. And yet this widow comes to the temple and she drops all she has in the bucket. This is an act of great faith. An act that says, I trust God to provide for my needs. And I think we look at that, and I think many of us are skeptical. We're ready to give out of our abundance. But are we prepared to give out of our poverty? Surely, Jesus, you don't mean that when I'm drained and I am down after a hard week at work, that I should invest myself in another person. Surely, Jesus, you don't mean that I should take my 401k and give it away to someone who's hurting. Surely, Jesus, you don't mean my paycheck. Surely, Jesus, you don't mean and we say that or we just ignore it and we go about our day. Is skepticism holding you back from following Jesus in an area, maybe of finances, or any other area? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Do we believe Jesus when he says that our heavenly Father knows what we need? Do we believe that? Do we approach that skeptically? Are we unconvinced that our Heavenly Father actually knows better than we do what we need? 
Is Jesus really who he says he is? Can Jesus be trusted? Do his words matter? Look at Philip's response to Nathanael's skepticism in verse 47. No, at the end of verse 46. He meets Nathanael's skepticism with three words. Come and see. He didn't argue maybe something good can come out of Nazareth. You don't know. You don't know everything. He just said, come and see. She's like, I, hear, I can hear, hear it, right? He's their friends. He's like, you got eyes in your head and legs. Go come and see. And then we get a faith-filled response. And so this is the final point this morning. The call to follow Jesus is heard and heeded by faith. Nathanael then goes to see Jesus, and Jesus sees him coming. And Jesus addresses him, and Nathanael asks how Jesus knows him. And Jesus replies that he saw him under the fig tree. Even before Philip said, come and see, or said anything to him for that matter, he, he saw him. That's not meant to be normal, by the way. You're not supposed to read that and you're thinking, oh, that's normal. It's not normal. Jesus had special insight into Nathaniel's whereabouts in life. Jesus isn't Sherlock Holmes drawing some inferences here. He's not saying, you smelled like a fig tree, and so I knew you were under the fig tree. No, he saw him. Because he's God. He's Nathaniel's creator. Consider that first, John read from uh, Psalm 139. That first verse Simply says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Jesus searched and knew Nathaniel as he sat under that fig tree. And as a result, Nathaniel makes this declaration, this faith-filled declaration. He says, He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is a faithful response. A moment ago, Nathaniel was like, yeah, nothing can come from there. And now he's calling Jesus the Son of God and the King of Israel. Something changed. What changed? God used the testimony of Philip, and God used Jesus' special knowledge to establish faith in Nathaniel. He establishes faith in Nathaniel. And where there is faith, there are faith filled responses. When Nathaniel came and saw Jesus, he believed, not because of the pre-existing potential in Nathaniel, but because of the one who he came and saw. He came and saw the founder and the perfecter of his faith. Hebrews 12:2 tells us that Jesus is just that, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And when faith is established, and when it's grown, faith-filled responses are the result. And Jesus says, Nathaniel will see greater things than this. But Jesus didn't need flashing lights. He didn't need explosions in the sky to establish faith in Nathaniel. He doesn't need flashing lights and explosions in the sky to establish faith in men and women and boys and girls and take note of what he uses here. He uses the faithful witness of a friend and his word. 
As we draw to a close this morning, uh, we're going to move our time towards the Lord's table. We're going to think about uh, what we've seen here. I want you to take time to consider two things this week. The first thing is what we said in our first two points, um, but I want you to internalize it. The call to follow Jesus is not limited. Two examples in this text are background and skepticism. It's not limited by background. It's not limited by skepticism. But the call to follow Jesus and the commitment to follow him is not hindered by where you came from, not what you've done, not how you've acted, or the doubts that you have right now in this moment. The call to follow Jesus is not limited by those things. And that goes for others too. If you're like, okay, I've committed to following Jesus. I'm following him with all of my life. That goes for others too. The people that you think will never follow Jesus because of their lifestyle. The people who you look at in your workplace or in your neighborhood who you think to yourself, man, they're really messed up. There's no way that they would follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is not limited by their lifestyle. It's not limited by their vices. It's not limited by their upbringing. It's not limited by their political affiliations. You name the thing. The call to follow Jesus is not limited. They need to hear about Jesus. And if they object, that's the second thing I want you to internalize this week. Simply respond, come and see. Come and see. You don't have to answer all the questions about the origins of the universe and all of that. You just need to say, come and see. And what are you calling them to come and see? Philip called Nathaniel to come and see, and he said, Jesus is right in front of him. But for us, what does that look like? It looks like what's taking place in this room at this moment. It looks like you caring for brothers and sisters in Christ around your kitchen table. It looks like a community group spending time together and growing in deeper relationship with one another. Invite skeptics to spend time with fellow Christians here over, uh, uh, at the dinner table. Invite them into your life. Because the way that they will know that you are Jesus' disciple is the love that you have for brothers and sisters in Christ. John, or Jesus says it here in John 13.35. He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Openly share the good news of Jesus Christ. And then if they respond with skepticism, invite them to see the love that disciples of Jesus have for one another. Love that only comes through a faith-filled response to follow Jesus. That implies that you have relationships with other, other Christ followers here. We care for, serve one another, meet other, one another's needs. You know, as I've shared the gospel in Jamestown, the number one objection that I've gotten over the last five plus years is Christians are hypocrites. If, they're, if they display dramatic and a dramatic objection, it's typically this one. Christians are hypocrites. Because they look into the church and they see slander, they see backbiting, they see gossip, they see power struggles, they see people grow bitter towards one another and don't think about one another throughout the course of the week. If you're cut off from relationships in church, you can, cannot be displaying the love that is the result of faith 
and following Jesus. And when you call a skeptic to come and see, what are you calling them to come and see? But when you tell someone about Jesus and their response is, yeah, but what about your response can be simple. Come and see the love the disciples of Jesus have for one another. The transformation that has taken place in Jesus Christ. Come and see Jesus for yourself. Just going to move us to the Lord's table this morning. Uh, all the elements are right behind the door. If you didn't pick them up on the way in uh, at some point in the next several minutes, feel free to stand up and go back there and pick up the elements for yourself. But as we move to the Lord's table, we see here that we want to make a full admission of what is said here in this text. Come and see. We are those who have come and we are those who have seen. Nathaniel sat under a fig tree in this text. He sat under the fig tree in this text. And when Jesus saw him, if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, we meet two people, Adam and Eve. And when they were deceived by the serpent and rebelled against God, they covered themselves with fig leaves. They realized that they were naked and they sought cover. But they needed a better covering. They needed a better covering. And so God sacrificed an animal and gave Adam and Eve coverings. In our text this morning, Nathaniel sat under the fig tree. But the call to follow Jesus came to him. And he saw that there was something better. And Nathaniel would receive a better covering from a better sacrifice than Adam and Eve did. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, he gives us the faith to see who he is. We abandon lesser things and lesser pursuits. And we find covering in the form of the blood of Jesus, which is given for the forgiveness of our sins. We find the righteousness of Christ in which we are clothed. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of these things. This is why we participate in this together. To proclaim the Lord's death until he returns and to remember the goodness of the gospel. The bread is the body, Jesus' body broken for us. The juice is the blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. And the only way to be saved from the wrath of God is to be covered with the blood of Jesus and to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ.